unprecedented living, and the topic today is Manifesting Melchizedek. It's a continuing series of what we've been doing over the last many weeks. And uh, the thing is, all the stuff we've been talking about, oh, sorry, Tino, I'm on. Yeah. Um, all the stuff we've been talking about, the principles, the insights, the revelations, uh, if, if they don't move from Kairos to Kronos, okay? Uh, when I say Kairos to Kronos, Kronos means time, okay? So, uh, whenever God does something, there's a season for everything that God does. And we can kind of, though this may not be the exact definition, Kairos is the things that are released from seasons, from God's seasons. That, that, kind, of, that kind of encompasses the whole idea of Kairos. We've got to take what God is revealing in Kairos or in God's seasons, and we've got to make them real in Kronos, which is time, chronology, time. And if we are not able to do that, then everything we are talking about, these insights, these teachings, these principles, these revelations, are untested and useless. So anything that we talk about has to be brought from God's present season or whatever He wants to do and whatever He's releasing. We take that and we build it in our present time. It has to be something tangible. And it has to demonstrate the life and the power of God. Hey, Renita. It has to demonstrate the life and power of God. So, if we don't do that, then everything we are doing thus far is useless. Okay, so just remember that. Thanks, Ryan. So, um, we've been talking about, what did we talk about last week? Unprecedented living, what, what we were discussing last week? Jacob's Ladder. We're talking about how to access things from the heavenlies and make them here on? earth. See, as priests we access the heavenlies. As kings, we execute whatever we see on the earth. As priests, we access the heavenlies. It says priests that we have an insight or an uh, or, 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 or a, um, ability to penetrate the heavens and see what's happening there. And it says kings that we now execute it here. And we talked about this about... Um, six or seven months ago, how we are priest kings here on earth. Revelation chapter 5 verse 10 says, He has made us priests and kings here on earth. Not in the future. Here on earth. Ryan is a priest king. Crazy. He's only 16 or 17. He's a priest king. And if he is born again, then he has, which he is, then he has the ability to access what God is doing in the heavens, and he has the ability as a priest to do that, because priests are allowed access into the very throne room of God. In the Old Testament, remember when priests would come, they would not stay outside. The people would stay outside. The priests would go right into the Holy of Holies. Hey, Matt, could I see you right up front? So he would go straight into the Holy of Holies. The priests could do that. So Ryan has the ability to now go into the heavenlies and God can show him what is happening. And then Ryan, because he's priest king, has now the ability to hear on earth as a king, establish what he's seen there. This is how it works. And uh, basically, guys, priest and king are the two tracks on which... Uh, remember we talked about finished work? Every, everything God did is already complete, finished. 
There is a finished work called Marcus. There is a finished work called Acts 29. There is a finished work called uh, the New Jerusalem, which we already and which is yet to come. Everything God did is complete. But we don't see it yet, but it is finished. But for a finished work to come to pass, it runs on the tracks of priest and king. It's, if, if a finished work, if, let's put it this way, if, if the finished work called Jacob, meaning the Jacob who God has crafted, who he wants to see fulfill his destiny, who he has shaped and written down every day of his life the way it should work out. It's up to me whether I want to do that or not. Hi guys, welcome. Good to see you again. So, as priests, for God to bring to pass everything that I, Jacob, should be, the first thing I need to do is understand that the two tracks that I have to run on is one, that of me as a priest, and the second, that of me as a king. Because only then can I access the things God is showing in the heavenlies and finish it here on earth. Let me give you an example. Gosh, now I can face the whole church. Till about 10 minutes ago, everybody was sitting there. Now the whole place is kind of full. So, You need eyes of faith in this church sometimes. (laughs) Um, Priest and king are the tracks on which the finished work accelerates towards completion. Let me say that again. Priest and king are the tracks on which the finished work accelerates towards completion here on earth. For example, if you turn to Genesis chapter 30, Genesis 30, Genesis 30, Genesis 30. Genesis 3.0. And if you turn to verse 31 and 32. And it says that um, this is Jacob and Laban. Laban was his uncle. And here's Laban asking him, what shall I give you? And Jacob says, "Uh, don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark colored lamb and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And then go to verse 43. In verse 43 it says that in this way the man, meaning Jacob, grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and men servants, camels and donkeys. And if you go a little above it, go to verse 37. No, not verse 37. Verse, uh, verse 38b. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set them apart, set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maid servants and men servants and camels and donkeys. Folks, 
The finished work here is verse 43. Verse 43 is the finished work. And what is it? That Jacob prospered. That's the finished work. Okay? Now, as a king, Jacob did something. Look at verse 37. As a king, Jacob did something. Look at verse 37. Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white strips on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. So as a king, he places these uh, rods that were speckled and that were chipped so that they would be right in front of the water trough when the animals came to drink. So this is the finished work. And what is the finished work? That Jacob would prosper. That's the finished work. What does Jacob do as a king? He takes those different branches and cuts them so that they're speckled and spotted and he puts it in front of the water troughs. So what did he do as a priest? Here's the crazy thing. Go to Genesis 31. And it says there in Genesis 31 um, verse 6 You know that I worked for your father with all my strength yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. This is Jacob speaking to Rachel. However, verse uh, 7b However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said the speckled ones will be your wages then all the flocks gave birth to speckled ones. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks were streaked ones. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. And then uh, in verse uh, 7 to 13. Okay, keep going. In the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled or spotted. The angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Folks, in Genesis chapter 31, we find that Jacob accessed the heavenlies through a through a dream. And God specifically says, I am the God of Bethel. And Bethel was where he saw that dream with the angel ascending and descending on the uh, ladder. So you see what is happening here. This is the finished work. The finished work is Jacob prospered. As a king, he had to do something. But before he does something, he has to see something. He sees a dream in which God specifically tells him how to go about taking the speckled and spotted and he, he shows him that picture. And so Jacob sees that and now as a king he decides, aha, now that God has shown it, let me now do this as a representation of what God has shown him. God showed him speckled and spotted. He takes these uh, branches and he begins to speckle and spot them and set them up. Now Jacob has brought to pass on the earth as a king what he saw as a priest so that the finished work will be complete.
This is how it works, folks. You see something and then you trust God to show you how to implement it here on earth. And when you do that, suddenly you find that you're one step closer to the finished work of whoever or whatever you are. Questions? Comments, challenges, disagreements. Yeah, it was just a God. What Jacob was doing was not some kind of magic that would say, look at these branches and start mating. No, it was, it was, it was a sense of uh, putting here on earth some kind of a representation of what he saw in the heavens. It was more, a, more an action of faith here on earth so that what was seen in heaven could now be sh- shown symbolically here on earth so that what God had said would come to pass. And this is what priests do. Priests see, meaning that you should do. You as a priest should see what God is showing in heaven. And then you do whatever you need to do here on earth, symbolically or in faith, and you will see a finished work happen. In everything this works, folks. Be it marriage, business, church, individual lives, this works. But I've got to know what I am seeing first. And as a priest king, Ryan and I have the ability to see what God is showing first. It works in anything. It works in training up your children. It works in uh, taking care of your home. It works in business. It works in everything. In everything. This is, yeah, where it becomes Nehushtan, yeah. Uh, I'd say, Matt, once you see something in the heavenlies, no? You will know how much to do in faith here on earth. You will just know it. Like, like for instance, I, I keep saying stuff like, um, um, one day I'll um, uh, have whatever is required to distribute money, travel, do whatever, and have a surplus. I know that because I'm, I know it's a finished work. God has already shown it. So how do I go about now here on earth? Whenever I see what I know God wants me to have when uh, he releases um, the wealth that is coming my, my way, I say, Father, I know you're pointing towards that. Thank you for that, and I'll keep an eye on for that. Or uh, knowing that I'll stand before kings because that's the finished work that has been spoken over my life, I make sure that um, whenever I'm traveling, I'll take one set of clothes that is decent to stand before kings. Yeah, but that's where priest kings have to learn how to discern. And we'll talk about how we can become, the whole point of this uh, teaching today is to avoid exactly that, Matt. To avoid anything that would come in the way of you being a bona fide priest king who accesses the the heavens and does things here on earth. Everyone here can be that. Because like it or not, you are a nascent priest king. A nascent meaning something that you're born with. The moment you become a believer, you are a priest king. But it is veiled in flesh and sometimes that has to be removed so that you can begin to walk in it. And the moment you walk in it, you begin to walk on those two tracks that will bring you to your completion, to the finished work of who you are. Just imagine the, the hundreds of people who are going to benefit from your life and my life when we walk as priest kings. Just imagine how the earth is going to benefit when you walk as a priest king. I'm talking about the earth, folks. I'm not, I'm not limiting it to Vancouver. I'm talking about the earth. 
Imagine how the earth is going to benefit when I, I walk in the fullness of a priest king that I am. Christ walked in the fullness of who he was. High priest and king. Because he is a high priest and king, so we are priests and kings too. Here on earth. This is reality. This is the truth. This is not theory. And the sooner we begin to grasp and understand this, the more we can walk in it, man. It's so real. You know, um, I remember uh, uh, some time ago, I was, uh, I'd be asking the Lord, so Father, what do you have to say about this? What do you have to say about this thing? This person asked me this question. What should I say to this person? At one point, I remember the Lord saying to me, Jacob, you know, sometimes you use me like a phone booth and you go into the phone booth with a 25 cent coin, drop it in, pick up the phone and say, so what about this? And you receive an answer, you put the phone booth back. He says, I don't want you to live like you're entering a phone booth. I want you to live like you are roaming around in a mansion and you're getting answers wherever. Why am I saying that to you? Guys, because priest kings, no, they don't go into a phone booth and drop a 25 cent coin to ask the Lord, what do you think about this? They walk in a mansion called, I am what I am. It is. But you begin to walk in, walk in answers, uh, uh, James. You, yeah. Otherwise, what happens is God becomes a phone booth that you go into. But what if you're, what, what if the earth is a phone booth? I mean, imagine a humongous, uh, not phone booth, what if the earth is TELUS? Now you don't have to go to a phone booth. You've got all those connections right at the place. You begin to walk in a mansion called I am what I am. That's the name of God. And then everything that pours through you, that goes through you, begins to come from the very nature and spirit of God because you don't live outside of it. So you don't have to take a step and say, I've got to pause for a moment, sing five songs, become holy, ask God a question, come out. We're not Superman going into a phone booth for a change of dress. We live that way 24-7. You begin to live in a mansion called... I am what I am. That's his name. What I'm trying to say is we begin to live in God. So there's no need to go to God because we are living in Him or with Him. Yeah. Folks, try to shift that and you will find that now someone could call you in the middle of the night and you will speak the wisdom of God. Why? Because you're living in the fullness of who you are as a priest and a king. There's a difference, folks. When it becomes your permanent um, permanent um, lifestyle, then you don't have to switch into it. Yeah. At once. He never, he, when the disciples would come and ask him a tough question, he'd say, just a minute, I've got to go into my son of God costume. Go into a phone booth. Comes out with a cape and says, no. No, Jesus never did that. He Always lived both a son of man and son of God continuously. Uh, no, you have to begin to live as a priest king. And as you begin to live as a priest king, you will find that the wisdom of God begins to become your natural place of dwelling instead of having to go to the wisdom of God. He who is the wisdom of God, the Christ, begins to become more and more evident in everything you begin to say. Yeah, brings it forth. Because now you're living as a priest king. You're not taking days off. I'll give you an ex- instance. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sue called me last night and she was uh, yesterday evening and she asked me. Uh, we, uh, Sue and I were supposed to meet a person, and the person decided not to meet. And so Sue was talking over the phone, and she said, uh, she, and we were talking about the person. I've never met the person before, but uh, we were uh, basically thinking, so what's the next step? And I didn't have to wait for a moment to uh, say, Father, so what's the next step, Lord? What do you want us to do with this person? No. As I'm talking, I'm so completely aware that the only thing God wants to say to the person, because right there and then, the Lord said, I do not snuff out a smoldering wick and I do not break a bruised reed. It's from Isaiah. And as he's saying it, I know exactly what he means. That this person has not come, but keep encouraging, keep investing in her life. Only good things, regardless of how terrible or bad or against God she may be. Keep saying how much I love her, how much I love her, how much I treasure her, how much I value her, how much I enjoy her, how much my pleasure is in her, how much I see what she will become. And as you keep doing that, this woman will change. And so there was not even a second's hesitation. In conversation, I, was, I knew I was giving uh, God's, I was speaking God's wisdom. Okay, uh, when we discuss these f- uh, next five points about how to walk as priest kings, you'll see how anyone even a new believer, if he begins to catch on, can grasp it and begin to grow in it. There are, uh, because, uh, yes, you can become a priest king immediately because that's who you are. But at the same time, you have to grow in it too, just like you exercise a muscle. So, because Jesus grew in favor, stature, and, um, and wisdom with God and man. So Jesus grew too in it. So that is there. But like Paul says, you can be a spiritual babe as long as you want. And in the, in, 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 in the kingdom of God, being a babe is not cute. It, it's just ridiculous. So you can have people who are 40 years of Christians who are just babies. Or you can have one who is 2 years old, 2 years a Christian and who is a champion. So that's how it works. And by the way, if you don't know scripture, God can speak in language that would seem very uh, like he would probably say to a novice, Hey, um, I don't butt out cigarettes. Uh, instead of saying, I don't snuff out a smoldering wick, he could as well say, I don't butt out cigarettes. And the guy would understand immediately. He may not know it's from Isaiah, but he, God would convey the same thing. So he's able to convey scriptures quite easily. I'm not encouraging s- s- smoking, nor am I saying you sh- that cigarettes should be left un- unbutted, but that's another thing. Any questions, comments, challenges, disagreements? Yes, Melchizedek means um, king of... Oh, actually, Melchizedek means righteousness, son of righteousness, king of righteousness. But he was the king of Salem and uh, the king of peace and righteousness, in a sense of speaking. No. Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Folks, when, when I use the word, or whenever anyone uses the word, something is a type of something, what it means is, it's a shadow of what the actual is. So when, when the Bible says Melchizedek is a type of Christ, what it means is, Melchizedek is a shadow representation of what Jesus is. So it's a type. No. is a shadow. A type. 
He, it was not, uh, Melchizedek was not Jesus Christ. He was a type of. Elijah is a type of um, John the Baptist. Because the Bible says, one shall come like unto Elijah. And that's John the Baptist. So Elijah was a type of John the Baptist. So that's the way. Moses was a type of Christ. Because uh, Israel is told, from amongst you shall rise a prophet like Moses. So that's how it works. Any questions, guys, with regard to how it works in terms of seeing and executing, like Jacob? Okay. Um, the king-priest nature um, is already in us, but can stay veiled in our flesh. Sometimes, till we go to our grave, folks. I'm telling you, there are hundreds and hundreds of Christians dying, who have died as believers, will go to heaven, but never discovered the the awesomeness of walking here on earth as priest kings. That would be terrible, man, to spend a life not realizing that or not living it out. It's already within you guys. But it's veiled in flesh. It's veiled in flesh. Can you see her baby? No. But do you know that it's almost like that. It's veiled in flesh, but you know it's going to happen. Just like Suhani, you know she's going to give birth. But can you see the baby yet? No. So priest king is already there within us. But it has to show. It has to make an appearance. And I want to take the life of Abraham to show you how the king priest makes an appearance. Now if you go to Genesis 14. Genesis 14. Genesis 14. Genesis 14, reading from verse 1. I have half a mind to make someone else read this with all those names, but I will. At this time, Genesis 14, verses 1 onwards. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eliasher, Kedor Laumar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Golim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma. Shemeber, king of Zebulim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedor Laumur, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laumur and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh, Kiriatim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedor Laumar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Golim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasa, four kings against five. Wow. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. Then they also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. 
One who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Abraham the Hebrew. Now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of who were allied with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as uh, Dan. <laughs> the simplest name was the hardest to find. During the night, I almost expected something bigger. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedor Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourselves. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in the Lord to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol and Mamre. Let them have their share. Folks, I, I, I want us to look at the life of Abraham and see how the king priest makes an appearance in his life. The king priest is here represented by Melchizedek. Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, I'm not too sure of how to pronounce it, Gisela. Melchizedek is um, a king priest. He was a king of Salem, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and his name means righteousness, priest of the Most High God. So we find that a king priest makes an appearance in Abraham's life. Okay? And through this story, we want to see what it takes for the king priest within us to manifest or to make an appearance. That's what we are heading, we are trying to find out. How does the king priest, who is already within you, because you are a king and priest, because Christ is king and priest, how does that king priest manifest or make an appearance in your life? We want to find that out. Because Melchizedek, the king priest, appeared to Abraham. So let's find out how. Look at the strange thing, folks. When does he appear to Abraham? He appears to Abraham not before the battle, but after the battle. You would expect that a king priest who is from God would appear to you before you go into battle to encourage you, to uh, strengthen you. But the king priest here appears to Abraham not before the battle, but after the battle. After he's beaten the four kings, then he appears. And he says, I'm the king of Salem, I'm also the priest of the Most High God. I'd suggest to you that the one way to l find out how we can begin to live as priest kings, how we can tear off that veil that sometimes hides the priest king within us and begin to live it out, is to look at the names of the four kings that Abraham beat. Abraham conquered four kings. When we look at their names, it will give us a clue as to what is required, what we need to conquer before the priest king in us can manifest or appear. Any questions? Do you understand where we are heading? Because by looking at the names of these four kings, 
that Abraham conquered, we will find out that when we conquer these four, suddenly the priest king within you will begin to become more and more evident. Suddenly he will be birthed. He will be manifested. Melchizedek in your life, the priest king in your life, will make himself very obvious. And then when you start running on those two tracks, you will see how finished works that God has in store for you will begin to accelerate and come to pass. If you notice, even with Abraham, as soon as Melchizedek blessed him after he defeated the kings, and Melchizedek blessed him, after that Abraham's life began to accelerate. In chapter 15, God comes and speaks to him. In chapter 16 and 17, God comes and speaks to him. In chapter 18 or so, he starts bargaining with God for Sodom. In chapter 19 to 21, you find him ultimately reaching the, the fullness of who he was as the father of faith on Mount Moriah when he has to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God turns up. And today, he has children sitting at Acts 29. Because we are the true children of Abraham. The seed of Abraham. We. And so, this priest king in us can manifest too, folks. So let's look at the four kings. The first king, his name was... The manifestation of the priest king nature in us is veiled as long as these four kings rule over your life. As long as these four kings, folks, rule over my life, it's going to be very hard for the priest king within me to begin to come into full display. That nature to come into full display is going to be a very hard. The first king is Amraphel. A-M-R-A. Oh, it's in your, it's in your, it's on your page, right? Amraphel. Now, Amraphel means sayer of darkness. Amraphel means sayer, S-A-Y-E-R, sayer of darkness. He speaks negativity. Um, darkness, not necessarily as uh, darkness in demonic, but I, I suggest to you that anything that is um, at its core negative does not come from the father of lights in whom... Yeah. Sayer of darkness. Uh, folks, the, the, the sense of darkness here, some may say it has to do with uh, the demonic, but I'd just say... Anything that personifies neg- negativity uh, that keeps coming out of my mouth is uh, what I would associate with it. Amraphel is a sayer of darkness. There's a negativity in words used. There's a negativity in the manner words are spoken. Because there are people who won't say things that are negative, but in the manner it is said, it carries tremendous negative negativity. And I'll tell you why it is important to beat this king. So the first one is Amraf. Uh, remind me to buy another board this week. Amraphel means sayer of darkness and uh, personified by negativity in words spoken and the way it is spoken. I'd say it goes further than that, Matt. I, I would I would agree that that's part of it, where you where you where it's self-inflicted. But I'm saying that when we begin to speak it to others too, because eventually, if I'm a person who keeps talking negatively about me, I will see everything with a through a pall of negativity, and so it'll go out to others too. So, and this is important that you check in your life and my life whether this is happening. 
negativity in words used and in the manner it's spoken, criticism of fault finding, criticism of fault finding, anger, rudeness, and the other thing which I, which is so subtle is um, inducing fear in others through the words that you speak. It'll come from a very nice place, but it's like putting a gun to someone's head and says, um, if you don't do exactly what I tell you, God is going to curse you. Now, that came out very nice. It was a very nice counsel. But basically, I'm putting a gun to her head and saying, if you don't do what I tell you, such and such things will happen. It's still negative. Yeah, through words to control. And if, if this is a part of your character, then I'm telling you, a priest should carry uh, knowledge on his lips. Mal- Malachi chapter 2 verse 7 says, I, God says, I want to find on the lips of a priest, I want to find knowledge. The knowledge of God. That's what I want to, want to find. But when, I, when on the lips of a priest I find negativity, when I find fault finding, when I find constant criticism, when I find words that are spoken as if they're coming from me, but usually to control and put a gun to someone's head, then, then King Amra fell is ruling in your life, Jacob. And I, um, you know, even casual talk will then constantly be lamenting the state of the church, the state of BC, the state of Canada, the state of the world. It will always be negative. You run into people like that, man. I know someone so well. <laughs> he came to Canada some time ago, but he's doing well. But every time you go to him, he'll tell, he'll tell you how lousy the country is, how lousy the people are, how lousy his job is. I've never seen him happy. Yeah, but but he won't do that, Gisela. He won't do that. He'll never do that. Yeah. Yeah, true. Shows his glory to the one who... Yeah. See, and I want to say that it happens outside of the church, so it's very easy for us to be saying the right words here. But if I go and ask your wife or your husband, if I go and ask your neighbors or your son or your daughter, if you go ask my mom or my sister, then you will find out whether Amrafel is ruling in my life or not. Because here it's easy, folks. Here it would be easy. But ask my mom, ask my sister, when they uh, ask me a question that I don't want to answer, when they um, press into an issue that I don't think is their business, then how do I react? Is it anger? Is it rudeness? Is it um, lashing back or is it still the same Jacob I should go ask your wife or your husband how is it at home critical, fault finding rude, angry then Amrafel is ruling in my life in your life I, I, and uh, just a word of caution to husbands there are tons of negative Amrafel husbands in the church folks tons of them they are rude they are fault finding they are miserly with their wives in terms of money, legalistic, and they operate on the basis that a woman should submit to a man and a man should rule over. Tons of husbands like this in the church. And if that is who you are as a husband or you are as a wife, then that is something that has to change. Has to change. Questions, comments?
Very simple math. The, uh, the principle of operation is there is no speaking the truth without love. There is no love without the truth. Simple. I have to truth in love or love in truth. The moment in my, let's assume you're my son and you do something negative. The moment when I speak to you, you, I, I come across with all kinds of truth but no love, then it's not really the truth. And if I come to you and you're doing wrong and I show a lot of love, but there is no truth in it, then it's not love. And you missed out on the father that I am if I do any of these two things. Uh, right now, the words I'm saying... No, it's not a negative warning. Uh, I know right now as I'm speaking, I know that I'm speaking the truth, but I don't, I'm not here with an axe to chop anyone down. Right now I'm speaking the truth and I'm speaking it in love. It is a warning. I specifically am warning Amrafel husbands on the tape so that when it goes out, people around the world will know it. And if you as a spouse here has this problem, change it. Because a king called Amrafel, a seer of darkness is ruling in your life. If you're a wife who has that same attitude with a husband, change it. And the strange thing is, Amrafel husbands and wives will never be like this with the rest of the world. They'll be very generous with the rest of the world, but they'll be very miserly with their spouses. They'll be very kind to the rest of the world, but very rude and fault-finding with their spouses. I I've seen so much of this, guys, it's not funny. No, no, inducing fear is when suddenly in my relationship with anybody, the person does it because they are afraid of me. The moment that happens, that relationship is on horrible ground for me. I'm saying that's wrong. Oh, no, no. T saying consequences is not a problem. But when I do something to cause fear in Ryan, no, no, not fear. I'm not talking about God. In my relationship with Ryan, the moment fear enters James, that relationship is not true. If, if a wife does things because she's afraid of her husband. But, but we, can, we can correct the person and, and explain it to him what the consequences yeah, could be. Yeah, and that's what, yeah. that's what God did with Adam. Hey, Adam, tons and tons of trees. You can go and eat whatever you want. Uh, yeah. But that tree, don't eat it. And because if you eat it, uh, you lose out on this amazing life that you have with me. Okay, just so you know. And he left him alone. There was no, don't eat, don't eat. Because didn't, Adam didn't live in, live in fear. If Adam left in fear, lived in fear, he would not have sinned. If Adam lived in fear, he would not have sinned. Folks, uh, like I said, I hope I'm not wrong and we'll talk about that at the end of the uh, teaching. When someone asked me four months ago, what is the biggest strength of Acts 29? My response was, um, people are free to do what they want. Yeah, yeah. totally. Mm -hmm. That is surprisingly the biggest strength of Acts 29. People are free to do what they want. But we are putting in principles so that people will know how to live in the liberty of what they now have. Please, if, you know, I, 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 while I was doing this, I was thinking of my sister and at times when she asks me questions that I don't want to answer or when she um, challenges me on something um, that I'm saying is of God and um, she says, but what if, what if? 
And as a sister, she, because she's close to me, I know I, I won't lose her, so I get irritated. And as I was writing this, I said to myself, man, there have been times when I've been rude to her. And Amra fell, uh, speaks negatively and rudely. He's a sayer of darkness. And I, uh, I was doing this, and I was thinking to myself, I've got to take out rudeness from my way of living, man. I cannot afford to be rude. Jesus was not rude ever. Ever, man. He was not rude. He was blooming angry with the Pharisees. But even in calling them vipers, I'm telling you, he was not rude. So what business do I have being rude with anybody? i got to live as a priest king here on earth, folks. We've got to become this. We have to let the Melchizedek manifest, the king priest manifest, appear in our lives. We'll come to that 28 minutes from now. <laughs> when Amraphel is active, the priest no longer has knowledge on his lips and the king no longer speaks words of God's wisdom. If you go to Malachi 2.7, it says the priest should speak knowledge and uh, God should find knowledge on his lips. The king should speak words of God's wisdom. That's in Proverbs 16 verse 10. That the sentences that come from a king's mouth should be divine. Sentences as in decrees. And both those are um, undone. Folks, um, let me deal with what Sue asked immediately. How do we overcome this? I have the absolute ability to stop being rude, folks. No longer, <laughs> before it could be, I, I would say, 10 years ago I'd tell you to go pray, go fast, go read the Bible more. But now the answer is very simple. It is in my absolute control and ability to not be rude because the only person that lives within me is yeah, Christ living in me through the union of my spirit and his spirit. That's all. It is absolutely possible for me to live this way. It is a deliberate decision, folks. And slowly, in it, maybe once or twice or three times, the decision will be a struggle. After that, it will become a preference. Because I want to become like Jesus. And if, I wa if that is my desire, then my rudeness will change, regardless of the circumstances, folks. Jesus was not rude with his mother. Jesus was not rude with his brothers, even when they came to say he was crazy and they wanted to take him away and put him in a house for a little while. It is absolutely possible. You might say, but you don't know my wife or you don't know my husband. True, I don't. But, you know, if you're married... You have more grace than me to handle that. You have it. In a sense? Your personality changes, folks, as Christ is in you. And Chris talks about other examples where at Tellus, people will call her, she picks up the phone and they rant and rave and use sometimes foul words. And before, 
she she never respond before she'd cry and stuff like that now even the crying is done because it's it's not it's like teflon not because she's grown harder but the person inside her is softer she can handle it and these are all connected folks criticalness fault finding rudeness anger they all connect at the end of the day it is it's a cho- it's a preference and it's only a preference if i l- want to become like the one who uh, i keep talking about show me the i mean like like george bush the first said where's the beef arioc i'll i'll sum it all up in the end arioc arioc is lion like the meaning of arioc is lion like l i o n lion like lion like arioc was a se- was another king lion like what this means is uh, uh, it is possible as believers to displace the lion of judah with the defeated lion like foe seeing his footprints in all things instead of the hand of god in all things let me say it again it is possible especially for charismatic evangelical christians to displace the lion of judah with the lion like enemy that we have called satan where we begin to see in all things the footprints of the devil instead of seeing in all things the hands of god i mean i know this was my condition where i would see the work of the enemy more clearly than i would see the work of god and it would be based on perhaps one experience with the demonic or perhaps a deliverance session or perhaps even a school i attended and so everything i do now would be based simply on experiential knowledge that i have and so in everything i would see more the hand of the enemy than the hand of god the problem with that is as soon as you begin to see the hand of the enemy as more evident than the hand of god you will do what jesus said in um luke i think he said if you see a king who is stronger than you coming against you if you have 10000 troops and a king coming against you has 20000 troops what will you do you will send out an emissary to meet him so that you can establish a treaty with him hezekiah did it in uh, isaiah 42 or somewhere he, he what he did was he heard that a king was coming against him so he sends the king a letter saying um what will it take for me to come into a treaty with you and he pulls out of his treasury the temple articles to send to the king why because now you're beginning to see the footprints of the enemy more than the hand of god sorry yeah saul wouldn't handle goliath till david came along a king who sees a stronger enemy will make peace long ways off it's in luke 1432 it's also second kings 1814 please understand that satan is defeated and disarmed but he's able to deceive so what i have to be able to do is be sober and vigilant folks let me say that again satan is deceived uh, satan is disarmed and defeated but he can deceive me 
So what I and you have to do is to make sure that we are sober and vigilant, but not hyper aware. Sober and vigilant. Like I said two weeks ago, Ecclesiastes 10.8 says, if you break the hedge, a serpent will bite you. Meaning, if you break the boundaries, if you break the walls that you should stay within, and then go, a serpent will bite you. But if I don't transgress the boundaries that I know I can operate within, then as long as I'm sober and vigilant, I'm saying to us folks that we do not need to watch out for the footprints of the enemy because we'll see the hand of God evident. I was talking to some people from this church and I was saying to them that purity is what intimidates Satan the most. Purity intimidates the devil most. Your sanctified life is your security. A sanctified life is your security. The more I decide that I will be pure, the less the enemy has any hold upon my life. Purity intimidates the enemy. It's the easiest way. Always turn it up a notch. Uh, it's in Isaiah. Uh, sorry, it's in Second Kings 18 verse 14. Oh, no, no, it's not. It's in... Uh, ah, shucks, I don't know where it is. Um, I don't know. But uh, he does it. I don't remember. It's in Isaiah. I don't know. It's in Isaiah. Uh, questions, comments, disagreement? As long as we do not break the hedge, a serpent will not bite us. My purity intimidates the enemy. Satan is defeated and disarmed, but he can deceive. Therefore, Jacob, as it says in First Peter 5.8, be sober and vigilant, but do not be hyper aware. The more I see the footprints of Satan in things around me, the more I will uh, choose to not step into, not take, not uh, shoot three arrows, not um, put my hand and take by both horns that which is mine. Because once I begin to see Satan in things around me, I suddenly realize that the enemy is stronger. One of the biggest changes in my life over the last three years is that I see the hand of God more than the enemy. Uh, you can apply it to don't break the hedge as in don't break relationships. You can apply it to don't break the hedge as in don't break the boundaries. You can apply don't break the hedge as to don't transgress or step out of bounds. Because a serpent will bite you. Questions, comments? Does anyone want to make up for Diana's absence? Second Kings thirteen seventeen. The king's name was Aram, A R A M. Uh, that story about Hezekiah. Second Kings thirteen seventeen. The next one, the next king's name was Long. His name was Chedor, Chedor or Chedor Laomer. 
and it means a hand full of sheaves a handful of sheaves a handful of sheaves a handful of sheaves s h e a b e s a handful of sheaves this king represents a poverty mentality a handful of sheaves is just whatever he does there's only a handful of sheaves there's not much it represents a poverty mentality a poverty mentality and there's a some of the um, guys who uh, tried um, explaining this name uh, say that uh, there's a generational sense to this name so it might be a name that came down generations so it's a poverty mentality and it carries a generational sense chedolamer means a handful of sheaves and it basically portrays a poverty mentality and it may be something that carries a generational sense uh, and the strange thing is it was chedolamer who actually led the other kings i found that fascinating that this is a king who led the others which then shows that there's power in this character if it begins to wield in my life i would think that th- th- these bunch of guys should be led by ariok who's lion like who or one of those other guys but he his name is a handful of sheaves which carries a sense of either mediocrity or a poverty mentality really and he's the one who led all these kings in the battle so if this begins to show in my life it begins to uh have tremendous power and let me let me explain what it is when when this character comes up in my life and it has force this was one of, a very strong nature that i had when i um not when i became a christian years after i became a christian this was one of the things that i had to battle against most um what what i'll be characterized with is low low sight as in you won't aim high it will always be low low sight i believe there's some kind of a deer in africa uh, it's it's a variation of a deer and the way they capture it is fascinating it can leap 30 feet and i know i'm exaggerating but 6 uh, feet in the air kind of a thing but somehow if you put a fence at the eye level of this deer this deer can't jump because as long as it sees the fence it is incapable of jumping but if you take away the fence it'll go it'll go like crazy man it can jump over a 2 feet 3 feet fence easily but because the fence is at eye level something happens in its mind so how farmers catch this animal is when they see the animal they somehow put a um, drive it into an enclosure and once they drive it into the enclosure they know it's caught even though it's fully capable of scaling it low sight mediocrity Uh, folks i want to say that this is not po- a poverty mentality is not about money it's not about being poor it's not about how much money i have or how much money i don't have it's a mentality it's a mindset it's a way of thinking okay low sight mediocrity inability to receive inability to receive uh hoarding h o a r d i n g in lack and in plenty hoarding in lack and in plenty 
hoarding in lack and in plenty, money driven. And I, I, I would say this very respectfully. I suggest to you that most people who are adherents of prosperity preaching have this problem. Strange, eh? Prosperity preaching, which is supposed to make you rich, most of the adherents have this mentality. And I, I know I'm making a very generic statement, and uh, that may not be completely fair, but I'd like to suggest that. Money-driven, prosperity adherence, Despising the Joneses, I'll explain that. Despising the Joneses. I'm not talking about Joan, I'm talking about the Joneses. Yeah, thanks. So let me explain this. Folks, when I have a poverty mentality, one of the things that may happen to me is my sight is set low. My sight may move now from, I have a two-bedroom, tiny two-bedroom apartment, Oh, I wish I had a three-bedroom apartment. That would be the ultimate. It, my sights are very low. Oh, I have this job. I wish I could get $8 more. Your sights are super low. It does not expand like God would have you expand. There's nothing wrong with a one-bedroom apartment. There's nothing wrong with a $5 job. But that's not the point. The point is my sights suddenly become set low. It's not about money, folks. Secondly, um, mediocrity. I will settle for things that are good enough. I, d I don't have to uh, do well with the gifts and the talents I've been given. I'll settle with doing mediocrely well. That's good enough. I'll put in my eight hours. I'll do what is required. I have no desire to overdo it. Overdo is a word that's not in my dictionary. Thirdly, inability to receive. I've met people who are super rich who do not know how to receive. Just don't know how to receive. They know how to give, but they do not know how to receive. Surprisingly, that's poverty mentality. Hoarding in lack and in plenty. Doesn't matter whether you've got tons of money or little money. You'll hoard it. I knew a man who supplies the cloth to all the stores in India, uh, in um, Vancouver. And lives in North Van. And has... Tons and tons of buildings. But you know, every three months he'll go and order one of these water coolers from different companies because they all give you a three-month test run. <laughs> That's how he got all his buildings. But you see, <laughs> at the end of three months he would return so that he can now go to another company. When people would come to visit him, in his office he had one table and one chair, so he would pull out the last seat from his van and put it in his office for people to sit. I'm not mentioning any names. You see, what I'm saying is... Pardon? <laughs> Hoarding in lack and in plenty. This, this is a poverty mentality. He Tons of money. He's one of the oh, wealthiest persons I met in this part of the world. Money driven. Suddenly, uh, everything you do is driven by the need to 
money. Prosperity adherence. These are the people who I would suggest to you are prosperity adherents. I won't explain that much more. Despising the Joneses. This is an odd thing about poverty mentality. What happens is you have some kind of a dislike towards anyone who is doing well. You're not happy at someone else's prosperity. It's an odd thing. You go into uh, a house of someone who's doing well and you'll say, well, these people are not godly. Look at the house. Or you see someone who's got a good car and boy, that money could have been given to the poor. Judas thought like this too. Yeah. It's a poverty mentality, folks. Can't find it in scripture, so... Uh, it's one of those pet phrases, do your best and God will do the rest. That's also not in scripture. Shut the door and God, God will shut the door, shut one door and open the other door. Not in scripture. Yeah, could be sound of music, yeah. So, folks, the emphasis on is on poverty mentality, not on the amount of money. Th- what happens is, when we, when I have a poverty mentality, I project my lack or my want as the primary competing concern over God. Everything now is this thing of lack or want. That becomes the primary competing um, concern that always comes ahead of God. And when the priest chases after an inheritance here on earth, forgetting that his portion is due from God, he misses out on the wine, oil and grain reserved for him. Go to Numbers chapter 18. Numbers 18, verse 20 and 12. Numbers 18, verse 20 and 12. Numbers 18, verse 20. Numbers 18, verse 20. And here's what it says. The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. Now go to Numbers 18, 12. I give you all the finest olive oil and the finest new wine and grain that they give the Lord as the first fruits of their harvest. What, what God is saying is, guys, you are priests who are serving me. Know this, that you have no inheritance here on earth. I am your inheritance and your portion. And because I am your inheritance and portion, I will supply you new grain, oil and wine. It is vital that this be broken off our lives, folks. Because as long as this is there, no, it's almost impossible to come out of, come out, and live a lifestyle that's different. Impossible. I remember in one of the things spoken over my life. One of the things that was said from Isaiah 49 was, uh, "Your reward is from me, and what is due you will come from me." And the moment I heard that, no. I realized that, oh shucks, God owes me dues and when he wants, he'll either give it to me as a lump sum or he'll put it in my bank every month. And so I don't need to worry anymore. Because if God says that your reward is from me and my dues, your dues will come from me, I realize, shucks, don't need to worry anymore. Yeah. It's a completely different way of living. So, Marie, you can walk around with her if you want. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, 
No, shadow lamor means a handful of sheaves, and a handful of sheaves means very little. It's like God consciously says, you collected a lot, but there's nothing in your hand. You harvest, but there's nothing. It, it, it's it, it's a mindset or a place of abject lack. Settling for a handful of sheaves. Nope, it's coming from his name. It's coming from his name. That that I would know of. That I would know of. I wouldn't. Name is. And remember, in the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament is again a parable that we are supposed to use in the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is a story or parable that we derive out in the New Testament. Therefore, names in the Old Testament are super revealing. Crazy. Don't know. And uh, the other thing is sometimes a name that would be given by the Hebrews to kings would perhaps portray the character more than the original name. Because at the end, No, we don't know. I'm saying, like, when we come to the word Sodom, we'll see that too. There's there's a, there's a Hebrew equi- equivalent of that name, and there is a um, Canaanite or Chaldean equivalent of that name. So, we'll come to that later. Guys, when priests chase after an inheritance here on earth, forgetting that their portion is due from God, you miss out on the wine, oil, and grain reserved for you. When kings run after what pagan nations are pursuing, instead of pursuing the kingdom, they end up chasing things that would be added to them. This is so sad. Just hear this, okay? If I run after the things of the world, instead of running after the kingdom, you know what I'm really running after? I'm running after the things that God said I will add to you. What a shame, eh? God said... Ryan, seek my rule and reign and all these things will be added to you. And here is Ryan, here is Jacob running after the things that are supposed to be added unto me. I'm running after them. That I would get anyways if I just lived out my life as a king seeking the kingdom. So simple, man. Anyways, true. So it's vital to wield contentment with godliness, with the riches and glory in Christ, knowing your place, folks. It, it'll all come together. It's got nothing to do with money. It's got to do with a mentality or a mindset. Strange thing is, Abraham, um, after beating this king, he has a lot of uh, spoils and he gives 10% to Melchizedek. And he gives the rest to the guys who came with him and he doesn't take a cent. And yet, he becomes the richest man in the land. Doesn't take a cent. Gives 10% to Melchizedek, gives the rest away and he, he comes out the richest. It's, just, it's an upside down kingdom we live in, folks. But the principles once they settle, no. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you will never have. I'm, I'm saying to you, as we begin to connect with this house, as we begin to connect with the set man in this house, meaning moi, 
as we begin to connect with um, principles, as we begin to connect with who we are as priests and kings, you will find an increase in assets and substance in this house. I'm not talking about this house having assets and substance. I'm saying we as people having assets and substance. I guarantee you this on the, on the strength of the word of God because that is always a pattern. Always a pattern. And the strange thing is, as assets and substance come into this house, you will find that we will become the best givers we have ever been. You should be the best giver you've ever known. I should be the best giver I've ever known. But I, it is vital that you connect to this house. Why? Because that grace is going to come upon this house. I'm just saying it to you. If you want to receive it as a prophetic word, please do. Questions, comments? This king was the guy who led everybody else, strangely. Questions, comments? Agreements, disagreements? Challenges? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, when I say low sites, I mean uh, not expecting... Um, not expecting anything in my life to change in terms of God intervention. Where um, this is who I am, this is what I am, this is what I will be. And immediately I cut myself off from what else God can do. Uh, if I were to go with uh, my qualifications, then I would be very limited. I did a master's in political science. I did not complete my Bible school. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, in that sense, it would be very limited. But th there, is no, there is no limit to what God can do with uh, my f two f fish and five loaves. But when I set my eyes low, I've met, uh, I, 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 I've met people who have come to this church who did not see themselves as anything more than what they are at present. And what they are at present was not even a shadow of what they uh, uh, could be. And when I prophesied over them, um, they still, when, when I met the person about two months ago, the person was still refusing to see um, it the way God was seeing it. Uh, God was saying, you will be this, this, this and this. And the person was saying, no, I don't think so. I don't see myself like that. So that's what I mean by setting my eyes low. Yeah. No, I set my eyes high on the star that God wants me to hitch my wagon to. No, no, no. I set my eyes high on, like Paul says, I set my, uh, I set, I I, I, I grab that which God is grabbing a hold of me for. So I set my eyes on the finished work that God is showing me. Not trying to create my own finished work, but the finished work that He's showing me. No, most uh, political science students end up as uh, being in civil services or uh, 
doing some research for some guy who wants to know political stuff or they end up teaching and if they're not good for any of these they become pastors <laughs> <laughs> moving on to the fourth king the fourth king is tidal t-i-d-a-l and it's not a detergent tidal means tidal means king of a foreign race king of a foreign race tidal means king of a foreign race king of a foreign race title means king of a foreign race or nation race or nation that's what it means folks the intent of this king is very simple we've talked about this at length for four weeks in the past the intent of this king is he's a ruler who wants us to make wants to make us subjects of babylon he's a ruler who wants to make us subjects of babylon and we talked about babylon for four weeks about four months ago three months ago he's a ruler who's intent on making me a subject of babylon a system that is god opposing in lifestyle in conduct in code in morality in principles in objectives babylon is a god opposing system and the intent of tidal is always to make me a subject of the system called babylon how does he do it a very simple folks and this is so pertinent to our lives and to christianity as a whole he does it one through affecting my sexual standards he affects my sexual standards what i mean by that is he tries to affect my sexual standards and by that i mean uh trying to lower my tolerance for what is moral and pure and what is not that's one way it is a well known fact that if you go to different parts of the world and you ask them what is moral and what is pure in terms of sexuality and what can be seen what can be practiced what can be viewed you will find that the standards are much lower than what they should be it is the easiest way to um uh, uh turn me or conform me to the system of babylon because babylon thrives on idolatry false religion and sex these were three of the things that babylon was known for idolatry and sex affects my sexual standards particularly in terms of what bombards my senses and so i lower my standards and as i lower my standards i break the wall or the hedge and now the serpent can bite me because my purity does not intimidate the enemy anymore the enemy can now intimidate my purity because i'm letting it go and please remember that you are a priest first and then a king if your priesthood is taken away your kingship is undone we talked about this many weeks ago that your kingship is built on your priesthood and a priest is called to be holy if you take away my priesthood then it's pointless trying to live here as a king that your kingship is built on your priesthood and a priest is called to be holy if you take away my priesthood then it's pointless trying to live here as a king we never hear christians shouting oh hallelujah we are we are priests no we always hear people shouting hallelujah we are kings 
But the first thing that we have to shout hallelujah about is that we are priests first. And it's on our priesthood that kingship is built. And just like in the UK, if, uh, if, if, if royalty marries commoners, a commoner, then the royalty is no longer royal. He does not have right to the throne. That happened to some prince. I don't remember which one. It's the same way. The second way that uh, title tries to affect me, it tries to affect me through power and pride uh, using recognition. Two, affects me through power using recognition among people. Because once that happens, pride kicks in. That's the second way I'm affected by Babylon. One of the philosophies of Babylon is make a name for yourself. That's the philosophy of Babylon. Make a name for yourself at any cost. And so one of the ways title affects Christians and completely destroys their ability to live as priest kings is that uh, they they give a person a sense of power or a sense of um, uh, uh, upstanding based on how you are recognized by the world or by your peers. And once it becomes insidious, what happens is you're undone. Acts 29 has to be careful about it because we're doing well. Jacob has to be careful about it because recognition will come. And when that happens, it'll test you. Uh, The message puts it this way. 15 minutes of fame will test who you really are. One of the things we have to learn to do, and I was... uh, thinking of it just yesterday, is whenever we do a job well, and it's really good, and people are telling you, it, telling you it's good, and you know you've done a good job, immediately let go of it. Don't savor it. As someone told me this years ago, but I still haven't, it's not, it's not my reflex now. It still is something I have to practice. I was at a place yesterday where I had to emcee and do worship, and I did a brilliant job. And uh, I know, absolutely no modesty. And people came up and said, oh, great Jacob, great Jacob. And I realized that when I went home, um, every now and then I'd uh, recall how well it went. I'd think of some of the really smart puns that I came up with right at the moment. And I found myself savoring it again and again and again. And suddenly, out of the blue, I remember this pastor telling me, Jacob, once you do something and it's good, let go of it. Do not go back and taste it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Same with, because at the end of the day, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I'm not saying look at yourself as a wretch, but understand that everything in my life is sheer grace. Sheer grace. Don't regurgitate your success, especially when you want to savor it. Because anything that comes back into your mouth from your stomach, as tasty as you think it is, it's not. Hey, that was a revelation, Lord. Um, third way um, I'm affected by tidal and that is um, intense uh, godliness, denying any power which is another way 
of defining legalism. Like I said, Babylon loves religion. Babylon loves religion. And if Babylon can influence the church where the church gets religious, where it gets intensely godly, but denies power, then Babylon has entered. Which is why all these teachings, if they do not become tangible reality in our lives in terms of living as priests and kings, then I'm saying, you do not come tomorrow, next week. Do not come. Because this is not the right place to come. If this is all just theory. We see that in Second Timothy 3.5. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, you'll meet tons of people, Timothy, who will be very godly, but their godliness will deny the actual power of God. They'll just be godly, but there'll be no power showing. That's another way that title affects us. A legalism where um, I'll say, Matt, this is not the holy way to sit. Please put your feet down. And that becomes intense godliness. But what did I achieve through it? It was a show of godliness, but there was nothing in it. So he sits like that. It doesn't make him any more reverent. Nothing happens. You find it in so many. I mean, I, I've I've been in churches where that's the way it is. Yeah, yeah. It, it has to come back to life. When I say power, I don't mean supernatural uh, stuff as in people falling and all this stuff. I'm talking about my life should begin to display Christ. You should begin to see more and more of the nature and the person and the stature of Christ in me. Not necessarily that if I touch someone, someone falls. Not necessarily that lightning comes inside the room. But that when, when you walk, people know, here goes someone... And here is a church that is growing into the fullness of Christ. That whole song. We come not in our name. We come not in our fame. We come not to chase after riches, but to live lives that will accurately represent the full stature of who Christ is, what he looked like when he walked the earth. I would say any supernatural manifestation that does not change you it's just manifestation and I don't know whether it even comes from the Spirit of God always. Folks, the last thing uh, that I want to touch on before we leave is uh, there was another king that did not have to be overcome but that met um, uh, Abraham. His, he was the king of Sodom. Abraham did not have to conquer him. But after he conquers, as he's coming... There's this king called the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom comes up to him and he comes as a friend. He comes as a friend. It's almost like Joshua chapter 9 verse 7 where there was a um, nation called the Gibeonites. They put on old clothes and they brought moldy bread. And they came to Joshua saying, uh, we are coming from a far off nation. We want to make a treaty with you. And they made a treaty with Joshua. So Joshua could never touch them after that. It was called the Gibeonite deception. 
And Sodom, king of Sodom comes like that. And the word Sodom would normally mean burning or scorching. But I'd suggest to you that the actual meaning, based on how the Hebrew uh, phonetic spells it, is Sodom is secret or hidden. Or hidden. Secret or hidden. Secret or hidden. Pardon? Yeah, it literally is secret and hidden and it inflames from within. You don't see it. Secret or hidden. That's what it means. So many dictionaries will just say scorching or burn, but uh, I'd suggest that it's, um, not uh, not I'd suggest, based on what I've been finding out, it's secret or hidden. That's what it means. So along comes the king of Sodom, and uh, he is not conquered by Abraham. He's a fifth king who's exposed by Abraham and he's set aside. He comes uh, not as a foe, but as a friend who's grateful. And uh, the sense of his name is, he, 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 if you allow him into your life, he establishes a foundation in you which is hidden under the ground and will inflame in time. It's a foundation that enters your life which is hidden but will inflame when the time is right. That's what it means. The king of Sodom, if I allow the king of Sodom into my life, what will happen is he will enter my life and then get into my life and at the right time he'll begin to be hidden and then he'll come out like this. Now that I've explained that properly. Just had to do that. I felt like doing that. Sorry, Sue. Uh, so, <laughs> notice that he comes not as a foe but as one who is grateful and then once uh, the foundation is uh, penetrated, it's like a Trojan horse, uh, it inflames in time. Um, one of the ways this happens in your lives and mine, this is just one of the ways we've talked about and then I'll talk about the final way, is that defective alliances with people, with set men, 